Today I welcome Deborah Eyre, founder and chair at High Performance Learning. In this episode, I discuss high performance learning, how to create a world-class school, teaching intelligence and future school thinking. So you're the founder and chair of High Performance Learning. Can you tell us a little bit about your organisation and what you do? Well, what we do is we help schools to adopt high performance learning as a style of education and become accredited and then start to realise their ambitions of moving towards becoming world class. And by which I mean that they're going to have far more students performing well. So high performance becomes the norm in those kinds of schools. But it's really important for me to say that in HPL style education, it develops a culture where the school believes that everybody genuinely believes that everybody is capable of high performance and that they're systematically helping students to achieve that. So it creates a very positive culture within the school. Because when you first say, you know, everybody's going to be a high performer, you could suggest, you know, you've got a kind of a situation where you're cramming and everybody's being kind of micromanaged to jump the hurdles. That's not what I'm talking about at all. What I'm talking about is that probably the greatest change in education in the last 30 or 40 years is our growing understanding of human capability. And we are all of us capable of things we never thought were possible before. For education, I believe passionately that education has to change and it has to really embrace the idea that the brain is exquisitely plastic and flexible. And what education is about is building that capability in people rather than sort of in the past. What we used to do was to respond to the idea that, you know, the old bell curve, some people were right at the top end, somewhere in the middle, and some of them were just never really going to make it. What we thought was good in terms of schooling is if our school reflected the bell curve, we were doing fine. If we'd moved it along a little bit in terms of the mean moved slightly to the right, so we were outperforming the average as a school, then we were doing very well. And I think what our kind of current understanding is, if you really understand the learning sciences, you know that that's hardly first base we could probably get to a completely different kind of place. So high performance learning is all about working with schools to try and realise some of that and just to set really lay down the gauntlet and say, you know, as a school, just see as you get better and better at this, just see how far you can get. And is um, high performance learning just for senior schools or does it start in, in the primary age groups too? It starts in early years. The earlier you start, the better. But what you're learning is, you know, the things that make the difference in terms of how do we get to what makes people, what do they do? What do really successful people do? And how can we start to build that? So what's interesting is that you can start in the early years and also that you do this in school, but parents have a big role to play in in helping to support that too in what they say and do at home. So I think part of the sort of forward-looking agenda is that we shouldn't be seeing schools and parents on opposite sides of the fence where all of us in the business of trying to help individual children be the best they can possibly be and so you know I think parents genuinely want to help they don't want to have to go and buy you know loads of special books and and sit down and force their child to do them but if you're giving them some of the sort of the habits these are habits that would be really good for your child to develop then yeah they're all up for being part of the process of helping them develop them. And can every school realistically become world-class? Some of them are closer to that objective than others, but everybody in theory could be. It's going to take a lot longer for some than others. But I think what I'd say is, you know, why would you not want to be on that journey? You know, why would you set yourself some sort of limits? At the moment, we're working with a really inspirational group of schools in in England, in Leeds. 
you know, they're serving really very disadvantaged populations. Um, they are determined that the next generation of children and young people that they serve are going to be in a different place. They are going to be world-class schools or they'll die in the trying. You know, they, they are absolutely not going to be restricted by the past. I think, you know, the kind of um, that level of appetite you find in lots of parts of the world in terms of not feeling, you know, well, it's always been like this, so it always will be and maybe a little bit better. But saying, you know, OK, we're not content to settle for that. We're going for something much more ambitious. So when we're working with schools, we're working with schools on a journey. Some of them are they're very prestigious schools. They're awesome schools to be in. And you go to some of them and to be part of those schools is amazing. But one of the things that characterizes them is that they're relentlessly dissatisfied. They're always pushing for the next step. That's one of the reasons they're so good, because they're always, you know, looking in detail at, well, what could we do just a little bit better on that? How could we make that bit a bit better? Those schools, you might say, they're already or there or thereabouts, whereas other schools are, are looking to emulate them. But I think the difference is that in the past, they maybe thought they couldn't. Now they're thinking, well, we know what the journey looks like. Let's just get going and see how far we can get. We may never actually get there, not in the lifetime of any particular school head or principal, or even, you know, within 10 years or so. But nonetheless, we're going to make fantastic progress. And instead of, you know, the old school improvement agenda of the past, where it was like, you know, you've got these deficits, someone comes along and tells you that you don't do these things right. Now you've got to, it's like putting your finger in the dam. You've got to block that one, block that one, block that one. You know, and then, you know, then your dam might be more or less okay. We're talking about something different here and saying, you know, lift your eyes up look at the horizon and look at what could be possible and then let's get down to you know how are we going to start off on that journey you know if you want to run the, the marathon you've got to sort of envisage what it would be like to run it and then you've got to start to think about what would be the first steps that I take towards that I think that's when we're working with schools that's what we're working with them on we're not making value judgments on whether they're good or how far they've got it's just we help them to assess where they are and to take the next steps towards it but we definitely want that level of ambition because I feel there's a sort of um, a kind of responsibility to the education profession now now that we know that more is possible almost everybody that goes into education goes in it because they want to do well for children and young people and if we genuinely believe we could do a whole lot better why would we not be trying? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Is there a typical journey length that schools, you know, let's talk the 0 to 60 of HPL, you know, that a school would go on from the moment they decide they want to start this journey to the moment they become world class and it becomes embedded in, in their way of doing things? Is there a typical kind of journey time or does it really vary depending on the school, the appetite? We've learned over, over time that it takes about two years for a school to, to become familiar and embedded. So it's a two-year journey up until accreditation, but that's not the end. Once you've got to that point, you're then on to systematizing and optimizing. So what do I mean by that? Well, systematizing is just making it the absolute DNA of the school, being careful about that. We had a conversation about it actually with some of our principals. And one of the things that we were talking about in systematizing is about, about recruiting new teachers. And so those principals were talking about the fact that obviously they want people coming into their school that, that are empathetic towards what they're trying to do. And different schools have different ways to do it. And the one I probably liked best was the, um, the head teacher from the Middle East who said, I just have a copy of the high performance learning book on my desk during the interview. I expect that whoever is interviewed is going to comment on it and make some observations. And if they don't, that's probably it. They're not going to get the job. <laughs> because what she's saying is, and this is part of 
systematizing it. So we're not going to leave it to chance. We're past the stage where some people might like it or not like it. We only want to recruit people who are in this space and really want to make it happen in this kind of way. So we've got it within the system. And, you know, when we start to optimize, we're trying to get that level of consistency across the school depth in terms of what you're trying to achieve. It's reaching all of the possible places it could reach. So is there an end to the journey? Well, we don't know that because we've been around for about five years and the schools that we're working with, they're still getting more out of it year on year. And I would think when I started this, I wrote a, a paper, a think tank paper for one of the London think tanks in 2010. And I said that if you looked at the research literature into how people think and learn, which is my kind of specialist area, it would suggest almost everybody could become a high performer. What would success look like? It would look like schools that routinely deliver that for almost all of their students. Have we got any schools that are there yet? No, not even the selective ones. So there's still a journey. And when I say almost, I'm only just hedging my bets a bit because talking to my colleague Adam Bodison in terms of special educational needs, for example, who's um, I used to work with in the past and is now CEO at NASEN, National Association of Special Educational Needs in the UK. I mean, he said, you know, there are 14 categories of special educational needs as defined in the UK, of which only three of them have any cognitive impairment attached to them. Even within all of the subsets of special educational needs, you shouldn't be lowering the bar other than for those three particular categories. And even then, we should be looking at what high performance looks like in the context of them. So we're just learning as an education profession about this new possible. I think it's, it's going to be quite a long time before anybody gets to the point where they've fully exploited it. I always, you know, kind of slightly tease selective schools by saying that they have so-called selected the top 25%. So I'm really struggling to understand why everybody isn't performing highly. So, But in the end, not everybody who goes to a selective school performs at the actual top level. You know, if they can't do it yet, then other people still have a bit further to go. But I think it's the challenge of the journey. And that, I think that's what's appealing to schools is I thought this was the best we could be. And then this year we outperformed last year. And so, you know, the schools with us five years every year, they've got the best results in the history of their school. They get better and better at taking these kinds of ideas and making them, embedding them in their schools and making them work. So the credit's all to them. It's nothing to do with me. It's the only thing I've done is outline these are the things that really matter and you need to make sure you pay attention to them. You've mentioned academic achievement and you know there's lots of conversation about exam reform and you know do, do we really need to be benchmarking academic performance all the time when there's so much more to the well-rounded child and what they need from education and also to be able to go out into the workplace and make a difference. You know you talk about behavior talk about people we're all absolutely unique that that's the beauty about the human is hbl geared for those that are really academically selective or is it broader than just pure academic curriculum so it's nothing to do with academic it's to do with cognition cognition is ways of thinking and so in terms of developing people's ability to think you know first and foremost I think everybody can do it and that's what the research indicates that pretty much everybody can do it but in order to do it well you have to demonstrate all of those things that we usually put in the soft skills kind of category because you do need to be open-minded you do need to be resilient and hard-working you do need to be able to let go of one idea and pick up another one 
one, all of which are the things that we actually value in individuals as people. And so I don't think they're on separate planets. I think the two things, if you want people to become well-rounded individuals, able to think for themselves, behave in the ways we would like, be compassionate, care about others, be able to really work hard and be resilient, they're all part and parcel of the package. And I think, you know, in, in high-performance learning, what we're talking about is you want to develop people who can thrive and flourish in whatever environment they find themselves. And they may choose to go on to thrive and flourish in an environment that requires you to have particular exam results or whatever, or they may not. They may choose to do something entirely different. I was talking to um, someone recently, this conversation came up about skills versus academia, and it was someone who makes bespoke furniture. And I said, so do you think you're a sort of skills with your hands or a thinker with your person? And he said, well, you know, I'd be making, making pretty rubbish furniture if I didn't think about it you know so it's a combination of the two you it's kind of it's a dichotomy to suggest it's one or the other i think what we're trying to do is create these you know kind of people who can be independent think for themselves be enterprising and then they can make choices about how they do that if they want to there's no value judgment on what you choose to do with your life but what is preferable is that you have a choice rather than that what you do with your life is defined by what you weren't able to achieve and what, what about other ways of measuring? Because, you know, it's, it's very easy for, for schools to come on the, on the coattails of more mm-hmm. academic success and obviously for HPL as well to say, look, we, well, we achieved academic success. We, we, we got the best results ever. But aren't you in danger then of siloing the, the, the kind of the academic achievement of HPL rather than measuring all the other bits that you talked about? I think that what we do measure other things in terms of HPL. So I suppose a couple of things I'd say. Firstly, I'd say that you don't always want to measure everything because it's sort of a bit reductionist. Some things you don't necessarily need to measure them, but you do want to see they're there. So they're recognisable. You can see them or feel them, but you don't necessarily have to measure them. If I go and visit a school, for example, I always can feel the welcome. You know, when I go in, I either feel, you know, as a visitor to the school, I feel incredibly welcome and so on. But nobody really quite measures that. But it's still important and it's still recognisable and it's an important part of that school because they're living their values and that living your values are really important. We do attempt to have, we've got these progression grids which take things like persistence or resilience or um, open-mindedness and you can be novice to expert over five different levels for example in empathy what would a novice in empathy look like um, well obviously they're probably not particularly well attuned to other people and other people's feelings and what would sophistication some mastery of, of empathy look like well the opposite end of that but we can characterize all of that and actually from a school point of view you can you can develop it and try to develop the next stage of it there are ways in which you can you know empathy can be taught let's be clear about it that's what the research shows so some people will start with a sort of natural predisposition but nonetheless it can be taught and I would say we ought to be teaching it because we jolly well need it in the world in which we live so so um, the development of those kinds of things more systematically is part of creating the kind of rounded individual that you were talking about and some of that as I say so we can map it out and say you're moving along from A to B to C but part of it is about providing the right kinds of opportunities so one of the things that, that having that mapping helps you to do is as a school is to make sure that that your students are getting the opportunities to develop those particular kinds of things so you know kind of and the sort of thing that schools normally do is for example if you want children to learn to be able to express their point of view in a way that is persuasive and non-confrontational you have to give them opportunities to 
to do that, to develop that in terms of the skill, because some people may very naturally be able to do that, but other people, it's it's more like, you know, this is what I think, and therefore this is how it is. And over time, you have to help them to understand how to create that line of argument. And we all know this in the adult world. We all know that when we want to get our way in the workplace, we kind of have to think through the tactics of how we're going to get that view accepted. What I'm suggesting is that that's, those are all life skills that children and young people need to learn as part of their education if they are going to be the rounded individuals that we all kind of want. And the things that make me kind of happiest when I see this sort of quantitative scores, and as I say, I'm, you know, I don't, I know that some people have tried to do this, but I'm not a big believer in it myself of, you know, kind of trying to make people sit uh, standardized assessments on things like, you know, kind of motivation or empathy or resilience. I just don't see there's that much value in it. But I do like it when we've got sort of quantitative surveys that say that, you know, 93% of teachers think that their students' well-being and self-esteem has improved because they're working in this kind of way. Similar sort of figure in terms of their confidence and their engagement in school. Because when you're positioning your school to say that we believe that you can do well, and if you're not doing well, it's just not yet. We're okay with that. Your performance at the moment is, you know, not what any of us would really like, but that's just not yet. We're working with you on it to get to a better place. That's a whole lot more engaging and motivating and inspiring than kind of being told, well, you know, in the end, you know, maths isn't really your subject. You know, you're really good in English, but maths, you've never been very good at maths. And the student, how do they feel there? Well, you know, it's never going to be any different, is it? And I've got another six years of school to go. So maths lessons are never going to be fun. So I think what you're doing is just subtly nudging the dynamic. So talking about your performance now and what we'd like your performance to be and the progress from where you were before, but we're not talking about your ability. In a way, it's quite subtle, but it's significant. And I'll give you a sort of example of a similar kind of um, switch that's taken place in education over my career. When I first started teaching, it was not unusual to hear a child described as being a naughty child, often a boy. It was sort of agreed that in terms of psychology, that's not a good statement. What we need to talk about is the behaviour. Rather than the person, we're talking about the behaviour. I do not like that behaviour. That is not behaviour I want to see. So it doesn't reflect on the person as a person. It reflects on what they're doing. So when we're working with students, what we're doing is doing that in the cognitive domain. So instead of saying, you know, you are able or not able or more able or less able or any of those things, what we're saying is the performance is like this and what the performance we'd like to see is like that. It's more objective and less judgmental. So from the student point of view, that means it's fine if I'm not, you know, they don't feel so bad about getting things wrong. That's just, well, yeah, I got it wrong that time, but that's okay. We're going to get it right next time. You know, for me, these things might seem quite slight, but they're very fundamental in the way that we perceive ourselves and what we're capable of doing. And if you think about yourself or I think about myself and how we came to a view of our capabilities, they are shaped by what other people say to you and what you believe in yourself. You know, the kind of what we're trying to build that belief in students in a realistic way. We're not saying, you know, you would get there without hard work or even that there isn't a long journey for some people. But what we're saying, there is a pathway and you can follow that pathway. And if you want it to happen, it can happen. We're there to support you. So it makes schools a kind of more optimistic kind of place, which teachers like, you know, this is not just teachers. When we started my research area is all about how people think and learn. And I was looking at the students, but the impact on um, on teachers in terms of their enjoyment of working this way came as a big surprise for me. I mean, I don't know why I should be surprised by it. 
but it was because it wasn't my kind of first sort of thinking. But I think for teachers, the idea that you're releasing that hidden capability within your student is a really engaging idea. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And what are the most common barriers to achieving success with HPL that you find in schools? I mean, you talk a lot around the people and people are often a bottleneck. Systems, technology can be put in place, but obviously, you know, through change management and training, education, habits you know, environments, you know, everything that's going on, you know, I look at kind of people, I'm, I'm fascinated by behavior myself from, from my own kind of occupational hazard of running a marketing business and helping these schools communicate to the right person at the right time. From an HBR point of view, what are the common barriers to achieving success or not achieving success? The first thing to say is that in the end, the place you need to get to in school from the teaching point of view is that everybody's doing it even when no one's watching. So they have to want to do it. It's not something that you can mandate from the top and then go around with your clipboard to check whether it's happening. People have to buy in. Part of the process is why, partly why we have these schemes which enable you to adopt, because part of the process is you have to plan for how you're going to make that occur. And a school is no different from any other organisation that when you introduce a new idea, no matter how attractive it is, there's going to be some people who are early adopters who want to get on with it straight away. There's going to be some who are going to sit on the sidelines and see whether this is something that we're really going to do or whether it's going to disappear in another few months. And then there are some people who, you know, the natural sceptics, and they're going to need a lot of convincing before they kind of move forward. So in terms of how does this work in HPL? Well, firstly, we help schools to understand this is not all brand new. You're doing some of it already. So let's recognize what you're doing already. In some cases, you're doing a lot of it already. You just need to do it more deliberately and more purposefully. And then you need to add some additional pieces. You're already well on the way. In terms of when you start to introduce this into classrooms and teaching, we explain that there are different ways in which you can do this. But the one that most schools opt for is that they play first. So they play around with the ideas first. So their teachers can play. They're not held to account to begin with. The reason for that being it's not going to do any harm. It can only do good. And from the teaching point of view, actually what happens is when they try things out, they're often surprised by the impact that develops an appetite to do more. So basically all we're saying in this is you teach the way you've always taught, not asking you to change that, but we are asking you to very deliberately and systematically use this language and start to develop these particular competencies in whatever way you deem is appropriate. So to begin with, you use them in your lessons, then you start putting them in your planning, but then you're expecting to see the students start using them because it becomes the lingua franca of the school. So once students are beginning to use the same methodology, you know you're kind of empowering them. And in a very simple kind of way, for example, if I take something really simple like linking, you can kind of trigger that in your lesson by asking people, you know, can you give me another example of that? Can you think of a time when we did it in that kind of way, etc, etc. But what you really want to get to is a point where the students themselves are saying, ah, I know how you do that. It's a bit like so-and-so because then they're beginning to really have use the toolkit independently of you. What we say with schools when they're kind of working on this is by the end of two years, you know, everybody should be using this. It should be in every age phase and every department. It will have taken off more fully in some areas than others. And as you move beyond first accreditation, what you're trying to do is to get that level of consistency across the piece. 
But, you know, it's interesting when you say, you might say, you ask me, for example, does it work with young children? And I had a really nice blog sent to me from Harrow, Bangkok, early years last week, in which early years is their strongest area for this. They just had a team of people who flew with it in early years. Now, you might think, well, it's most applicable in early years then. Well, no, not at all, because I could point you to other schools where it was the, the science department who really flew with it or the sixth form. So there's a kind of something about particular individual people. But culture change is always a sort of a slower process. But I think one of the things that we suffer from in education is the idea of the kind of quick fix. If you want to make change, what you really want is sustainable change. And this is about building sustainable change over time. So we do have a very clear adoption process, which enables schools to get it right first time. And that's why it's worth working with us to do that rather than just buying the book and having a go. Yeah, I mean, you, you answered the next question, which is really about, you know, does HPL work better alongside certain curriculum subjects or ages? You know, what you're just saying is it doesn't really. And, and there's a lot of different factors. You know, I, I work in schools, you know, trying to drive transformational change and a lot of it's cultural and time and other things. And, you know, trying to drive change is difficult, but you have to start somewhere and, and show them a roadmap to go, look, this is why. And different schools will go at different paces depending on their appetite, the capabilities, exactly. um, you know, and, and also the resources that they've got in play. Just tell me a bit more about HPL in terms of your geographic coverage, you know, how many schools, how many countries? Yeah, I think we're in 15 countries now and we've got about um, 60 schools. But the volume isn't really the game because um, we really want to work with schools who really want to work this way. So HPL style education is a style of education. It's a bit like being a Montessori school, for example. It transcends individual school leaders. What we're doing is working with schools who really feel we want to make a real step change in terms of teaching and learning. We want to become experts in the learning sciences and we want to really be able to say that we get you know, the best out of every child. They're pedagogy-led schools. It's interesting. So I'm really interested in school leaders who are interested in teaching and learning. And you might think, well, surely everybody is, but some are more interested than others. But actually, teaching and learning is a school's core business. You know, when you're talking as a business person, you're thinking about, you know, as a leader of business, you need to understand your core business. You know, when you're marketing your school, part of what you're marketing is that you're good at your core business. So from the point of view of whoever is leading that school, I would say that in terms of what does it take to be a very successful school now you have to be able to understand your core business of teaching and learning if that means that you know you've got other people that you are putting into senior positions who are taking this forward that's fine but you can't completely delegate it you can't just say you know i've got a head of teaching and learning and they sort out teaching and learning teaching and learning is the business of the school so everything that the school is doing needs to be kind of around that so for example when i say that the school has to signal that everybody's a potential high performer i mean the entire school i mean whoever is supervising lunch whoever is is driving the buses that has to be led from the top so you know i think what we're really interested in is attracting the kinds of schools that really want to step into this new space because they're some of the most innovative they are at the leading edge of what's happening in terms of of, um, teaching and learning capability. So for schools who are at the moment thinking that amongst other schools in their city or in that they're ranking themselves as being a really good school, if they're not in the learning sciences big time, they're going to be overtaken by other people. And if you're in a different sort of space, like you're an ambitious, I don't know, in the Middle East mid-market school, if you want to get to quality fast, it doesn't mean you've got to charge a high fee rate. 
you just have to concentrate on the core business. So I think that the thing that's really good about that is that lots of children and parents in different situations, maybe paying different fee rates and maybe paying no fees at all, still have the kind of chance to do this. But it's got to be quality committed schools doing it. As you were saying about everything else that they do, it's not really that, that it takes a lot of extra time. It's just about being purposeful about it and thoughtful about it and having a plan. We're just at the stage in our kind of, um, you know, may come on to talk about this, about the kind of growth of HPL as a business. We're in the just starting to scale stage. And so um, we're looking to expand. We um, started working with uh, schools individually across different parts of the globe. We've got a particular footprint at the moment in the Middle East, probably going to move out into Asia and Southeast Asia pretty soon because obviously we're following where the scale of international schools are and that's where they are. No, it's, it's fantastic to see your, your, your business, your idea grow. I love seeing transformational change within schools. I think it's enormously difficult. We need, we need ambassadors and leaders like you to keep challenging the norm and also to get education to take part. So, you know, in five years since you started, I think it's incredible what you've managed to achieve. I know I speak to many of the, the heads who have embarked on your HPL journey. They cannot talk more highly about you and, and what you do. The final wrap up for me, I, you know, it would be remiss of me not to mention lock COVID. The impact, obviously, the pandemic's had on education. What impact has the lockdown, the online learning had on HPL's ability to deliver your model to the schools in this kind of remote learning framework? I guess the short answer to that is that like everybody else we already were quite virtual in our delivery mode but we've stepped that up professional learning it's seen a renaissance during covid the evidence from um, people like lec and management consultants is that professional learning online has become very very popular and actually we've benefited from that so it hasn't been problematic on one level on another level i don't think there's any substitution for being able to kind of talk to people face to face and be in their environments and see their environments and i miss that so does the whole of the organization so schools are so up for it in terms of how they've embraced technology that enables us to work well too and i do think that covid has kind of it's caused a big change i remember when my kids were in school doing secondary they were doing the history of medicine and apparently the greatest advances in the history of medicine happened during war the same thing's happening now is the greatest advances it's in times of crisis so in terms of education we've seen some of our greatest advances suddenly happen because we're in a time of crisis moving forward into the future that some of those things will shape how things are it's interesting with technology for example that i always remember that sitting in a room in cheltenham as it happens listening to david putnam in 1997 talking about how technology was going to change schools as acutely as the switch between the silent movies and the talkies and it didn't, not in that way. Obviously, it's impacted, but not in that kind of really, really fundamental way. But maybe now it's starting. If we don't use this moment, I think people have been talking about education reform change. How do we change the educational model for a long, long time? But it just doesn't happen. So, yeah, I just hope I, I hope this is the catalyst to driving it and that we don't just kind of fall back to the, the way we've always done it when we start going back into school. 
No, I, I agree because I think what we'll find is that, you know, students have become less dependent on the school. They've learned how to find out information from other sources. So school is one source, but not the only source anymore. In a similar kind of way, you know, they, they work at a different pace. So they haven't all been working the same kind of way. And this kind of industrial model of education, which has been around for such a long time, maybe we are beginning to kind of erode some of it. But I guess the things I think that are, you know, kind of fundamentally will always be the case in education is I think the sense of being part of a community for children and young people is absolutely critical and however we create that community that sense of being part of something is in a physical way as well as as virtually is tremendously important and also learning you know learning a lot of learning occurs through talking and so you can't really substitute for that and I think maybe technology helps to in some ways enhance it but certainly that kind of the ability to talk more I mean you know schools have said they've had far richer conversations when they've done virtual parents evenings than they had when they had them face to face for their you know 10 minute slot so those kinds of things are really kind of interesting but I also think the challenge for us in education moving forward is that if the future of education means that we've got more sophisticated users our students are better users of education maybe they'll be more demanding in terms of what they want in terms of education as well in a way that also plays to problems around inequality because what you'll get again the more we create those sophisticated users the ones who find that most difficult because you know they haven't necessarily got level of support or that level of access or anything else you know we have to guard against creating a different inequity from the one we've had before in educational terms but I do think we're creating you know more enterprising smarter students I think that's great you know we found that values attitudes and attributes particularly they have really served students well I just think we're equipping students for the future so that they can be more autonomous and independent and I think that's the direction of travel that education is inevitably going to go in and and when you think about is it the unthinkable you know sometimes you hear these facts that really shock you and I heard one that wasn't from education at all the value of Hilton hotels is um, 31 billion pounds this is an irrelevant piece of information but the value of Airbnb is actually 74 billion so we used to think hotels was all about like Hilton Airbnb, which is quite a small, nimble kind of organisation. So in terms of, you know, what do we think things will look like? It may well be that we've now got through COVID, for example, we've got, you know, master teachers who are, you know, doing their maths lessons to, you know, thousands and thousands of students who just log in to do it yeah. rather than I call them the super school. teacher. And, that, and that's what I speak about. And that's my, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all around. It's a super teacher where they, they then and they should command millions, just like the Instagrammers, the YouTubes. It's, it's a real shame shift because you want to be inspired you know and, and why should the few get inspired by the few right right Let, let's get all great inspiring teachers because not every teacher is inspiring i do think that's the thing that's kind of happening is that the, the sort of big monolithic structures are breaking down to some extent how fast will that happen how serious will it be I don't know. I don't think we can predict because I don't think any of us predicted any of the other things that were disruptors. But I do think that the step change that COVID has caused, I don't think it's going to be back to business as usual on the other side for anybody. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see, can we capitalise on it in education? I think that for me, you know, that's the that's the kind of, it's the opportunity. You know, I get a bit frustrated when the whole of the focus is on what people have missed out on 
during COVID in terms of education. You know, I think we ought to flip the coin a bit and think, yeah, clearly they've missed out on coming to school and that's a problem. But let's think about how we can capitalise on the situation in which we find ourselves and, you know, build back better, as they say. Um, it doesn't mean just, you know, doing catch-up classes. That's the worst of all worlds. You know, kind of what we want to be doing is finding the ways to turbocharge the way students learn and to increase their motivation so they want to do it and, you know, kind of get ourselves into a place where education is as education is in the very best context rather than this you know kind of well we all know why we we sometimes fall into into a different kind of pattern but we've got the opportunity to reset and it's interesting for me talking to schools where they seem to fall into two camps between the ones who see that opportunity and they're already planning and they're already thinking forward and you know really embracing it and the other ones who are kind of in survival mode where they're kind of you know I can't talk about anything else except for how we're going to get through the next few weeks they're just going to miss out because they need to take the opportunity that's that's here now because it'll never be there again and and for future generations coming through you know they'll look at this generation of senior leaders and say wow you know that caused such disruption and such an opportunity for you and what did you do with it you know I really think schools need to think positive about them and embrace it and I don't think I'm being you know kind of rose tinted about it I'm quite a realist about things I just think that you have to seize the opportunity as and when it comes you can connect with me on twitter instagram and via linkedin remember keep inspiring schools we need more future school thinking now